Tonight we're starting a seven-part series that will end at the end of December, uh, and the title is Birth Pains of the Body of Christ. My intention is that by the time we get to the last message, you'll have a very clear picture of the body of Christ, what it is, what it means, uh, what God's purpose is with it, and where we fit in. Uh, tonight we're going to begin this series by talking about three great men and their trials. And I know what each of you ladies are thinking right now. If this is about birth pains, why are we talking about three great men? Uh, well, the answer is that bringing the spiritual body of Christ to birth involves both men and women, as we'll see in the following messages. And more to the point, in this message is that we should wonder why good men like Job and Jeremiah endured such trials that they both came to doubt God and questioned his fairness and truthfulness. Hard to believe those great men of God, we'll see in a moment, questioned God's fairness and truthfulness. A short answer then to the question of why we're talking about these great men is that their stories are impossible to understand without a New Testament context. And an even shorter answer is to add the Apostle Paul to the mix with Job and Jeremiah. Um, we're going to expand on both of these answers and arrive at a glorious truth about a very wise, loving, and all-powerful God who has a clear plan and a purpose for the world he created and the human race that calls this earth home. God has a plan. It's a spectacular, glorious plan. And the best part of that plan is you and I seated here tonight. If Jesus Christ is your Savior, you are an intimate part of that plan. Now, uh, one of the problems is uh, it's natural that we would think God's plan centers on a story about us. But Shakespeare got it right when he said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. For those Shakespeare buffs here, that's from As You Like It, Act Two. Very true statement. The world is a stage and we're just players on it. Um, in other words, God's unfolding purpose as recorded in Scripture is to tell a story not about us, it's all about him. It's his story, his purpose, the outcome that he wills. And uh, if we understand that, everything falls into uh, place in our perspective, and we don't feel that intense about me. Why is this happening to me? But rather, if we understand it's a story about God, then we'll begin to wonder how does this fit into his purpose and it takes the pressure off us to understand. It's essential that we understand that it is a story about God to grasp his purpose in bringing to birth the body of Christ and how the trials of Job and Jeremiah and Paul fit into that purpose, not to mention the trials we may also experience along with multitudes of other Christians through the centuries. I doubt that there's anybody here tonight, anybody watching from home, who has not endured some trial 
at some stage as a Christian if they've been a Christian for any length of time. And so in that context, we're going to begin by looking at Job's suffering uh, and quite superficially because he's not the main focus of tonight, but uh, we'll begin there. And before we do that, let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for the indescribable privilege of breaking the bread of life, uh, for this wonderful body of Christians here, uh, for those who are watching from home, and for this word, Lord, that you've given to us that is so rich in every way. It literally does feed us and bring life to us. We pray your blessing upon the word tonight. Bless us as we listen, and please bless me as I speak. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we start with Job's story. Now, uh, we're a pretty mature bunch of Christians here. Most of you know Job's story very well. Sudden disaster crushes a man who is greatly favored by God, causing him to lose everything near and dear to him. His health, his wealth, his family, the respect of others, and Worst of all, his seemingly close relationship with God. Um, just in case some of you aren't that familiar with the story, I'm going to quickly read through chapter 1, just some highlights there to give you the context of who this man Job was and why his suffering was such a surprise to him. Uh, verse 1 of Job, if you want to turn there, it's, by the way, it's not on the screen because uh, as often happens, and I apologize always to people at the back, I decided to add this at the last minute. So, um, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Lovely old word just means he avoided evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. And that tells us how rich he was in all these things. Verse 4, and his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. So his children, his seven children, circulated amongst their homes, uh, fellowshipping together. He has this wonderful man of God, uh, very blessed of God. And um, uh, then we go down to verse 6, and something very ominous happens. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. The sons of God in the Bible is typically uh, re referring to angels, and this is before Satan was cast down to the earth, so he had apparently free access to God's presence as God's adversary. And the Lord said to Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. If you go to uh, Peter, he talks about the devil uh, walking up and down, seeking whom he may devour. He's like a roaring lion seeking to destroy us, and his main target is us, God's people. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him? Listen to God's testimony of this man. There is none like him in the earth, a perfect man or a spiritually mature man, and an upright man, one that feared feareth God and escheweth evil. Then ans uh, uh, Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth, God, doth Job fear God for naught? In other words, uh, he only walks with you because you take such good care of him. Um, 
Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. There is so much we can say about this. The main message that I get out of it is don't be surprised when trials come and don't think that God is caught by surprise when trials come. Uh, the question is, how do you react to those trials? Well, look at Job in his initial reaction in verse 20. Then Job arose. This is after, by the way, if you read the intervening verses, he loses everything all at once. Uh, it's all taken from him. And Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor char charged God foolishly. He had the perfect response. And then his trials got worse. And eventually Job cracked and began to doubt God. Now as we read Job's story and just this brief introduction to him, it's tempting to sympathize with him in his misfortunes and to try and understand why he suffered so greatly after God had spoken of him as this wonderful servant of his. Uh, and I dare say each of us secretly hopes fervently, I sure hope that never happens to me. Uh, but that would be to miss the whole point of the story. Let's just touch the highlights and look at the main question that comes out of the story. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do good, bad things happen to good people? It's the primary question that emerges from Job's story and in the face of his calamity, because Job believed that too. I'm righteous. I don't get it. I don't understand why I'm suffering. In the face of his calamity, he declares his righteousness to his friends. Friends gather to, find, to try and help the guy. And uh, they're sit, sitting there in sorrow, just feeling his pain with him and wondering why this has happened to him. And Job declares to him, I'm confused. I'm a righteous man and this shouldn't be happening to him. And Job's friends in return say to him, Job, that statement proves just what a, an unrighteous person you are. Clearly, you're suffering because you did something wrong. And your denial of doing anything wrong proves what a jerk you are, is in modern parlance what they are telling him. And that goes on for a long time. They have this argument, Job declaring, I've done nothing wrong, and his friends insisting, you must have done something wrong. If you just confess it and beg for forgiveness, God will get you out of this mess. And Job persists, but I've done nothing wrong. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to Romans, says, the clay does not question the potter who shapes it on the wheel. That's a good thing to remember, and neither should we. Because God intervenes and rejects both arguments, 
Job's argument, I don't deserve this, I've done nothing wrong. The friend's argument, you must have done something real bad and you do deserve it. Because God is a just God and he wouldn't, be let, you suffer. He wouldn't let you suffer like this if you hadn't done something really bad. And then God steps up and declares his ways are beyond our understanding. He makes it clear to Job, and it's an extraordinary speech. I, I recommend it to you to read from Job 38 to, to 42 and verse 6. One continuous speech, amazing the way God sums up just who he is and how insignificant Job is. And the basic message he gives to Job is we are not called to understand. You have no right to ask God to understand anything. Our calling is not to understand and not to figure God out. Our calling is to obey. Just do what you're told. And that's the hardest thing for us. The clay should not question the potter. We learn from God's unsympathetic answer to Job that obedience is his implacable requirement. That wonderful word implacable just means absolutely unchanging. He'll never change that requirement. And the sooner we learn that, the better. He expects obedience from us. Nothing more, nothing less. And all of us know what we should do most of the time. And all of us, at one time or another, simply disobey and think we'll get away with it. And often we do because God in his grace lets us get away with it. But we're always walking on thin ice. When we draw near to him, we discover that he's not interested in our doing. And we, whether we know it or not, we constantly are measuring ourselves. Well, I'm going to get blessed by God because I've had a really good week. Or I'm, I've been blessed by God because I've had a very good week. And I've done very well. But our performance will measure, never measure up to his standard. He's much more interested in our being. Being obedient is really all that matters. Just as Jesus said during his time on earth. You remember in John 8.28 he's recorded as saying, I do nothing of myself. For I do always, always those things that please him. That was his testimony, and it should be ours. That's the struggle. It's only when we are submissive and obedient that we begin to see. Humility, our humility brings clarity. We begin to see and understand when we bow and obey. Instead of shaking our fist at God and pushing him away from us and saying, you've got no right to treat me this way, or why are you doing this to me? Well, that's unfair. Job misunderstood his relationship with God just as we still do. He thought the blessings he received from God were earned. And because he felt they were earned, he felt the right, he had earned the right to question God. God blessed me once because I'd earned the blessing from him. And now that he's treating me badly, I've earned the right to stand up to God and say, Explain yourself. That, my friends, is about the thinnest ice you could possibly stand on. It means that we, when we adopt that attitude of God, we haven't got a clue who God is and who we are. 
Job learned the hard way that we are never innocent or deserving of God's grace. Our nature condemns us, not only our deeds. We earn nothing but judgment. We deserve nothing but hell. God gives us every good and perfect gift, despite ourselves, not because of ourselves, not because we're so wonderful, but despite ourselves, and because he has a purpose that is beyond our imagination. And if you'll stick with these messages, you'll find out what that purpose is. He has a clear purpose. It's an amazing purpose, way beyond what we could imagine. But it's here in the book. He tells us, at least he gives us some hints. He has a purpose in every trial that comes our way. So that's Job, very briefly. Then we get to Jeremiah. And by the way, let me just acknowledge the uh, group here this evening. This isn't the kind of message one would preach at the church across the road. People would probably get up and walk out. Um, this is a message for mature Christians or maturing Christians, people who really are set on serving God. Because a lot in this message is not very comfortable, but it's necessary that we grasp it if we are going to do and be who God wants us to be. Jeremiah's story is an extraordinary one also. Our introduction to him is right in uh, the first chapter, and it underlines God's total sovereignty in his life. The teenage son of a priest in the waning days of Judah before the nation is carried away into Babylonian captivity, Jeremiah is uniquely singled out by God. He says this to him, Jeremiah 1.4, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew, knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Jeremiah 1 and verse 4. As a God-appointed prophet to the nations, Jeremiah is told that God's words in his mouth will uproot them and destroy them, rebuild them, and firmly plant them. He, he tells him, Jeremiah, I've appointed you a prophet. Everything you say is going to come true. When I say, tell that king he's going to be judged, he will be judged. When I tell you to tell that king you'll be blessed, he will be blessed. Um, and the prophet is also told he'll enjoy God's protection so that attacks against him will not overcome him. God never said you won't be attacked, but that's the part we hear. God said you won't be overcome by the attacks. And the implication is if you stick close to me, you'll be okay. And that's the part we quickly forget. As a God-appointed prophet to nations, Jeremiah is told he'll achieve all of that. And he proclaims judgment and destruction against Judah and Jerusalem, against Baxter and kings, priests and people. And he's roundly condemned, rejected, persecuted, beaten up thrown in a, in a hole in the ground, and he begins to question God because things just don't turn out the way he expects them to. Jeremiah chapter 15, verses six, 16 to 18, introduces us to his reaction. Uh, and it's an extraordinary reaction. Verse 16, 
of chapter 15. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual, and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? And listen to this condemnation from the mouth of the prophet against God. Wilt thou be altogether unto me as a liar? And as waters that failed, I've preached on Jeremiah before, and I'm always amazed every time I look at that statement. He dared say that to God. Uh, he, he accused God of being like a mirage. He's a hungry, ma a, a thirsty man in a desert, and he sees a pool of water, and he goes to scoop up the water, and he gets a mouthful of sand. That's what he's accusing God. Your promises are like that to me. Uh, well, it gets worse. Jeremiah, in saying that, by the way, echoed Job. Job, when he was accusing God in Job chapter 30, verses 20 and 21, said to, uh, said to God, I cry unto thee, and thou dost not hear me. I stand up, and thou regardest me not. Thou art become cruel to me. With thy strong hand thou opposest thyself against me. Those were Job's words. In Jeremiah's words, pretty much the same. And God responds to Jeremiah just as he did to Job by telling him to repent of such words and just do as he's been told. The people must become as he has been, God tells Jeremiah. I don't expect you to become like the people you're prophesying against. They're supposed to be like you and serve me and obey me. So the prophet prophesies again and the people reject him again and he rebels again. He, com he complains and questions and then accuses God once more. Chapter 20, verses 7 to 9. And here he gets really personal. In verse 7 of chapter 20, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. When you gave me that wonderful prophecy, man, I, you just took me in. I, I saw glory and honor and triumph, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and as prevailed, I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. More troubles follow, more assurances from God. But if you turn to the lamentations of Jeremiah, you see that at last Jeremiah begins to get a clue. And that's a good introduction to what we see in the Apostle Paul. So if you go to Lamentations, uh, chapter 3 and verse 18, this is Jeremiah speaking. He says, I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Verse 19, remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, that's bitter, bitter-tasting herbs. My soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. When I think back on those hard times, I feel broken. I feel humbled. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. 
It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. My dear friends, if you can come to the place in the middle of a trial where you can say that, I get it, I understand, God is merciful, he's not trying to kill me, he's compassionate, and he'll get me through this. If you come to that place, you've learned everything that God wants to teach you. He talks of God's compassions, and in verse 23, he says, They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And then let's go down to verse 40. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Uh, what a wonderful turnaround for the prophet Jeremiah. And that introduces us then to Paul. Because Paul had the advantage of the Old Testament. Of course, Jeremiah and Job had no Bible to help them. You and I have this amazing book. And Paul went back and he was very familiar with their stories. So when his trials came, he didn't react in quite the same way. He was tested as much, if not more, than any man recorded in Scripture. You can read the detail of that in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 29. I've given you all these Scriptures in your notes. And 12, 70 to 8. And yet, in his introduction to the letter in which he lists all these trials, he says this to the Corinthians. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Paul knew a great secret. And the conclusion he draws from his experience goes to the heart of the glorious mystery of living victoriously under any circumstance and goes to, our heart, goes to the heart of understanding what God is trying to do with the body of Christ. And I believe that we live in a day when that is going to be fulfilled. If you go to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 to 10, Paul, in summing up his reaction to his suffering, says this, He, God, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, says Paul, will I rather glory in my infirmities. That means... I'll boast gladly about my weaknesses. I'm not going to try and hide them. I'm not going to blame God for them. I'm going to boast in them. How can you say that? Well, look at the next line. That the power of Christ may rest upon him, upon me. Therefore, because I want Christ's power in my life, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities. I'm content with my weaknesses in reproaches, in the insults that come my way, in necessities or troubles, in persecutions, in distresses, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul got it right. He didn't beg for relief. He begged for God's power. Don't get me out of this mess, God. Give me the power to rise above this mess. That's exactly what God is trying to teach each of us. And here's the key to the mystery of victorious inner life that is the secret treasure of every child of God. 
understanding that we are different from those Old Testament heroes. Abraham and Moses and Job and Jeremiah and others, all of whom doubted God and questioned God and rebelled against God's plans for them, every single one of them. Those in the Old Testament knew about God but did not know God. They walked with God and talked with God but did not experience what the newest, babyest Christian, the weakest little Christian experiences from the moment of spiritual rebirth. And it is this, the miraculous, real, indwelling, comforting, strengthening inner life of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here tonight, if you know you're saved, you contain in you something that no Old Testament figure could have even dreamed of. The life of Christ is in you and me. And that is our strength and that is our power. And God's plan, very simply, is he's got to break us for that to be seen, for that to come out, for us to depend on his power, not our own. Paul sought power and not relief. Christians who are familiar with Romans 8, 5, 15 to 17 and live in the reality of those scriptures do not faint and don't rebel against God when the hard times come. Let's look at Romans uh, 8, verse 15. Wonderful passage. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, my daddy, the one I want, to, I want to sit on his lap and let him cuddle me. But at the same time, he's also the God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth. He's my heavenly father. He's my God. Christians are the only ones on this planet who are able to call God those two things, my dad and my God. And that's the relationship God wants with us. But it doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come easily. You've got to grow into that relationship. Verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, listen to this, children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But what does that cost us? If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. That's the price. There is no other way. When we are weak and do not complain about our weakness, when we are persecuted and do not lament our unfair circumstances, when we experience the fury of the God-haters against us and do not fear, and folks, it's coming. It's coming like a freight train down the tracks, and we need to be ready for that. When we experience that and do not fear, when we are deprived and do not resent those who seem to have more than we do, when we look to God and glory in his goodness and in his strength, even in the worst of our circumstances, then, but only then, 
does God's power become ours? His power in us must be realized before it can be released through us. And that's what he's trying to teach us. Know what, who you are. Know what you have inside you. Know what that burning is inside you. Know what that life is inside you. And when you know it, let me help you to bring it forth. Let's look at what we do have. Just three quick scriptures. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with a few sort of measly little blessings. No, it doesn't say that. It said, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We read that and we rejoice in that, and we forget the price to get that. And in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, it says very much the same thing. Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet or qualified us. What are we qualified for? To be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. That is some inheritance who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his, his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue. That word virtue is excellence. He's called us to spiritual excellence and glory, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. that ye might be partakers of the divine nature of God himself, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, etc. We have so much. The Christian who truly understands these life-transforming truths no longer runs from his challenges but towards them, just as David did a glorious allegory. The entire Israelite army was terrified of the giant Goliath, and a little shepherd boy came along, and instead of running away from him like everybody else did, he ran towards him. What was different about David? He understood. Each of us, must identify the Goliath in our life and ask ourselves the question, are we running away from him or towards him? In addition to our personal challenges, we live today in this country, I'm sad to say, in days similar to those of Jeremiah. There's a great falling away from God. We see the forces of evil gathered us on every side 
and we should not be surprised because the Bible told us this would happen. We should not be discouraged because the power at our disposal is greater than all the power of the enemy. We can call on exceeding great and precious promises from Almighty God and we should not despair. In the days ahead, the last thing we should do is despair. We should rejoice. Why? Because our redemption is drawing closer. And we have all of God's power at our disposal if we'll bow to him, if we'll be humble in his presence, and if we'll draw from his strength, which he wants to give us and release through us. Above all, we should not repeat the mistakes of Old Testament heroes who were filled with self-pity and doubt at their time of trial. Rather, we must follow the Apostle Paul, who showed us by his reactions to the sufferings he endured a better, new, and living way. And next week, we're going to talk about feeling welcome in the war. Let's pray.